Amen. Good morning, church. Glad you made it through the Papa Bear storm and, and got here to church. Um, my name is Justin, one of the elders at the church, lead uh, teaching pastor. Um, wanted us to imagine for a moment that we're at a party together, all right? That's a Christian party, don't worry. So we're just playing some catchphrase and drinking LaCroix, all right? We're good. And uh, as you can imagine with those two things, it's getting pretty rambunctious. Uh, 2 a.m., there's a knock on the door, and everyone freezes, and the door opens, and it's a policeman. Neighbors have probably been complaining because there's a, a, too much noise going on. Now, as a loud person, I've gotten this my whole life. Every time I go to an office building, other office doors are shutting, right? Frank Fino's here. It was sad the people who lived below me in college kept having to bang on the, you know, the, the roof with, the, the, with a, a broomstick, saying, quiet down up there, loudmouth Frankino. And uh, the policeman shows up, and he says, who's in charge here? Right? And one of the, the house owners sheepishly responds, it's them. And, and what does the policeman re- respond with? Well, I'm in charge now, and I'm telling you, party's over. The noise has got to stop. Everybody's going home. Now, if this guy's got a uniform on, he's rocking the badge, and I can see his taser, and I can see, I look outside, and I see that his police car's out there with the lights spinning, then it's pretty obvious he probably is who he says he is. But if he comes in wearing street clothes, he's got a water pistol in his pocket, right? I'm not afraid of this guy. I'm going to go, where are your credentials? And this is what's going on here, this juncture of our story. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and we just got done with the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it says that the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowds are astonished and, at his teaching. And why? It says, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. He's teaching as one that has authority. And yet, as, 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 even though he's like that policeman in the doorway claiming to have authority over the situation... Jesus didn't have a uniform on. He had no badge that said Messiah or King. How do we know, Jesus, that you are who you're claiming you are? To say words like, follow me, give everything else up, and enter my kingdom, my way. Well, in the next section of Matthew, we're going to look at a three-part mini-series, chapters 8, 9, and 10. As, as Matthew wants to show us Jesus' authority, he wants to show us his badge. We've seen that the purpose of Matthew is to show us that Jesus was the one, the promised rescuer and Messiah that the Old Testament had all been pointing to, all the prophets God was speaking through. It's pointing toward this one who would come and save the world from their sins. And we've seen that that Matthew's gone out of his way to show that that is this man, Jesus. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we saw Jesus comes from the right royal line. Had to be born a Jew from Abraham and born in the kingly line of David, which he was. We also saw in the virgin birth that it was the right kind of birth where he was fully fully God to be the righteous sacrifice, but also man so he could die. We saw in chapter 3 that he had the right witnesses. John the Baptist, his forebearer, saying, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then God himself, as he came out of the waters being baptized, we hear his words, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is the coronation of the king. And then in chapter 4, we see that he lives the right kind of life. He goes into the wilderness, resists the temptation of the devil, the same temptation that Adam and Eve failed, the same temptation that you and I have failed. It would be the right kind of righteous. 
And then in chapter 4, we also hear the right message. He said, repent because the kingdom's here. You need to change. If you want to enter into this kingdom, you need to change. Follow me is step one. And then he shows them in chapters 5 through 7 what it looks like to follow him. What it looks like to enter into the kingdom, the kind of person that's in the kingdom. He shows the right kind of hearts, which is ultimately his heart. And then we're going to see today in chapters 8 through 10 that he has the right authority. He has the right authority to say the audacious things that he has just said. And we're going to see this section, we're calling it the kingdom extended under Jesus' authority. And we're going to see three things about Jesus. In chapters 8 and 9 today, we're going to see stories about Jesus being our healer. Next week, our sender, or excuse me, our leader, as he says, come follow me. And then in chapter 10, as he sends out the 12 disciples, we'll see that Jesus is the one who sends and this morning, we're going to see six important truths about Jesus as healer. In each story, we want to zero in on what are the key truths that he's trying to communicate about who Jesus is and why that matters to us today. So let's dive into this together. Matthew chapter 8, uh, verse 1. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus is willing and able to heal the physically sick. Starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Now, the term leprosy can cover many kinds of, of diseases regarding the skin, but almost all the time it was fatal, and it was highly contagious. You know, we're living in a world right now as the coronavirus is continuing to spread and the fear that that's causing um, among many nations. And, and this is a day of modern medicine. I mean, just flying home from Arizona, we're already seeing everybody with the face masks. You know, now they're saying, don't wear the face masks, but, you know, that, that's another story. So... Leviticus 13 paints this picture of, of what a man who would have leprosy would look like, and it's not a pretty one. This is according to the, the law that they lived under. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, you put yourself in that leper's shoes for a moment and imagine that tomorrow you contract a disease and, and because of this disease, you have to move out of the city. You can't be near anyone. Like, you can't even live in Kasilov. That's how crazy it is. I told Nikiski I'd, I told Nikiski I'd give him a break, so we're going to pick on them. I mean, you've got to go to Clam Gulch. You've got to hang out with Alan Clinton. That's how bad it's gotten, right? <laughs> he was here first service, so I can pick on him now. Um, you're living all alone. If someone comes around you and says, you have to yell out, unclean. I mean, how embarrassing is this scenario? No one will touch you. No one can even come near you. This was one of, if not the worst forms of uncleanliness and therefore hopelessness in all of Israel. And by the way, this is not a cruel law. This was wisdom, right? This was hygiene. At that time, before modern medicine, this disease, before everybody would come down with it, they had to quarantine these individuals. But I love the leper's words here in verse 2. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, you see the faith in this guy. He knows, I says, I know you can heal me, but do you want to, Jesus? If you want to, you can. And I love Jesus' words even more. He said, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You see, Jesus doesn't cover up his nose and go, you're disgusting. He doesn't stiff arm him. He doesn't go, okay, fine, but like, I'm not going to get near you. And some of us need to hear the word today that Jesus isn't just putting up with us. That Jesus wants to come near. That Jesus wants to heal us. Our sympathetic high priest who walked our road, who got sick just like we did, who hurt just like we did, says, man, I know your pain and I want to come near and I want 
to heal you. But not only does he want to heal this man, he demonstrates it in the most incredible way that he possibly could have. What does he say he do? He does. He reaches out his hand and touches him. Now you realize what, the, what risk Jesus is putting himself in, touching this man. All the disciples are freaking out. They're like spraying Purell all over every place. Like, what is going on, Jesus? What are you doing? I mean, there's other stories where Jesus heals without touching. He can say a word and the man can be well. What he's showing us here is the dignity and value that he wants to show this man, the tender love when he touches the untouchable. And you imagine, man, no one touching you for years, no one coming around you. Some of you guys are like, that sounds amazing, <laughs> right? I know why some of you moved to Alaska. I get it, I get it. But we all want people to show us care, right? Regardless of, of our love language. And for this leper, this may have been the first time in his life that someone showed him this kind of tender care and affection. And then in verse 4, Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus goes, don't just post this on Instagram, a selfie with Jesus, like, look, check it out, everybody. Like, he says, don't take this onto social media. Don't broadcast this. Jesus had a specific timeline toward the cross, and he didn't want the word spreading just from the healing, but from his message. And, but what he does say is, I want you to go to the priest, and I want you to show him. Now, why would he tell him to do that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, there was this whole cleansing process, Leviticus 14 and 15, that they'd have to go through. But you know what? what? That never happened. Nobody ever got healed from leprosy. So you imagine the witness. When this man comes in and says, you know that incurable disease that I had? It was cured. Jesus, I mean, if we walked into the doctor's office and said, remember that diagnosis you gave me of stage four pancreatic cancer? Jesus healed me. This is a witness to the priests at the temple. But it was also the proper channels that they had to go through in the cleansing process. And the priest was the one that at that time had the authority to reinstate them. To say, yes, you're clean. Here's the process you go through. Now you can go home. Now you can be restored as a full person. See, Jesus cares about the full restoration of us as humans. That he came to heal. He came to restore us into right relationship with God and with other people. Be reinstated back into real healthy community. What a beautiful story we see here at the outset. Second one, we're going to see Jesus is number two. Jesus is willing and able to heal the whole world, the whole world. Verse five, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. So the man that Jesus is interacting with here is a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. He's a centurion. The word centurion from the Latin cent, per cent, one of a hundred, or, or, or one penny, or penny there. But what is that referring to? The Roman officer, the centurion, was an officer over a hundred men. So this guy knows authority, right? He oversees a hundred men. I have eight people on staff here that I'm supposed to oversee, and that stresses me out, especially if you knew our staff. Um, as an office, this man understand, as an officer, this man understands authority structure. He, he lives in a world where you say, I say jump, you say how high. And I've tried that with our secretaries. It doesn't work, right? Ryan just looks at me and is just like, coffee, right? You're just... As a Gentile, right, which is a non-Jew, not only was this an enormous amount of faith, typically the Romans did not worship the Yahweh God that the Jews worshipped. But this also, this man knows that the Jews saw the Gentiles as unclean. 
When he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, that's not just simply a, a kind of a, a show of reverence. He knows that the Jews would see Jesus as unclean if he walked into this Gentile's house, just like the leper. Don't go there. Not toward that person. But how cool is this? The centurion, see this little servant, this little peon of his, typically not valued or dignified in the same way that the Jewish people would not show that value to the Gentiles. What's being communicated here? That Jesus came for everyone, even the least of these, the whole world. Another thing that we see here is that he heals those who believe. Look at verse 10. When he heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion believed, and so Jesus acts. I tell you, many will come from east and west. This is referring to Gentiles. And they'll recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, a reference to Israel, they'll be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus says, I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. I imagine the disciples are like, hey, <laughs> we believe you. I left my fishing job for you. Like, what is that? I don't know. I'd be a little put out. Jesus knows that this is going to stir the pot. He knows what he's doing here. He's saying there are, there are some who are not Jews who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are also those who are Jews, some of which that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the bottom line here? It's faith. He says, those with such faith, those are the ones I've come for. And Jesus indicates, for I came for all who believe. And in the words of the famous philosopher Michael Jackson... It don't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. I adapted it. Sorry, Michael. But it, in, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, context, he's talking to the Gentiles. You who once were far off, they were not a part of the covenant that Israel had entered into with God. You who were once far off have now been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. God came, Jesus came to heal the whole world. Now, for us, this doesn't seem like a big deal. We're like Jew, Gentile, whatever, we get it. Like, Jesus came for everybody. But at that time, the Jews were like the only child. And now they were being told there's another kid being brought into the family. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. When they see Jesus associating, eating with Gentiles, let alone healing them, let alone saying they're going to be a part of our family, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? This was huge for them. Huge, blew their minds. And then Jesus... <laughs> We're going to tread carefully on this one. Verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now, this tells us that Peter was indeed married. And guys, I want to talk to you for a second. If you're Peter and you, Jesus is approaching your mother-in-law, how many of you, honestly, would be like, oh, we're good here, right? Like, I think I heard some demoniacs outside, right? You want to go take a walk on the water, Peter? Like, Jesus, don't, don't worry about her, right? How many of you would, would not want him to heal your, your mother-in-law? Now, my, my mother-in-law, now that I have one, listens to this podcast. And so I would have said, yes, Lord. Amen. Heal her immediately. Priority number one. She's a lovely, lovely woman. And then I love, I love, hi, Laura. And then verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and look at what it says, began to serve him. She just gets over this major fever and she's like, would you like coffee? Right? Just like all mother-in-law shit. Well, we'll just leave that right there. We'll just leave that right there. Right? Again, she's listening. Ugh. Why this story? What is significant about him singling out this, this mother-in-law of Peter's? Well, Jen Wilkin points this out. 
um, and this would have been in the Jewish mindset when they would have been here. This is the first, these are the first three specific healings that we see in Matthew's gospel. Now, what's so fascinating in this, who were the three that he healed? He, he came to the unclean, the leper, came to the, the, the Gentile, the centurion, and, and then he also approaches Peter's mother-in-law, who is a woman. Now, at the time, the temple in Jerusalem was the place that you would come to worship God. It was the place that you would enter into his presence to offer sacrifices, to be with him. And approaching the temple, there were these series of, of walls that only certain people could enter. And outside of that main gate was, was where the unclean stayed. That would have been as far as the leper was allowed to come into God's presence. And through that gate was what we called the court of Gentiles. And this was as far as the centurion would have been able to go. And then as you move in closer, they called it the court of women. And this was as close as Peter's mother-in-law would have been able to come into God's presence. And from there, it was just the male priests. And into the Holy of Holies, it was one man, one time a year, the high priest. Matthew's healing stories here, it starts with those that are farthest away. It starts with those who would have been regarded as the most unclean in their societies. The ones that most people would have pushed to the margins and said, there's no way Jesus came for these kind of people. And those are the first people that Jesus touches and comes into their homes. And Jesus himself is the fulfillment he's going to claim of the temple itself. In fact, right out of the gates in John chapter 1, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is tabernacled, literally became what was the temporary tabernacle into the permanent temple. He says, I'm here now. And what is he saying? The temple was the access point between God and man. And he says, it's now in me. It's now in me that God and man will re-enter into relationship. And I have come to create access for all And some of us need to hear the word this morning that you are not too dirty for him to touch, that you are not too far off for him to bring near, you are not too sick for him to heal, you are not too sinful for him to forgive, you are not too broken for him to restore. He says in two verses earlier, but to all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen. Point number four, Jesus has authority to bring order to our chaos. Verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick. All right, here's an easy one to breeze through, demon possession. <laughs> um, this comes up more later in the gospel, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of this that we just don't know and don't understand. And in, my cult, in our culture today, my guess is that a lot of demonic activity it gets chalked up to what we would probably call mental illness. Now, now hear me, I am not equating the two. But there are messy, blurred lines, and, and that's probably the category that we would put most of what we see today. And C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall in regard to devils or demons. And the first one, I think, is where most of us in the West would fall. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And that's just, that's just fairy tales, right? It's not a real thing. Yeah, I can't exactly explain what happened there, but that's not... Now, if that's true, why in the world would Peter have said, be sober-minded, stay alert, because there's a devil prowling like a lion to devour you? Or when James says, resist the devil, 
when you submit to God and he'll flee from you. Right? The, the, the New Testament authors are very clear. This is alive and this is a real thing. And we, he wants us to think it's not when it is. But then we can go the other extreme. He says the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That, that some people think everything's a demon. They blame everything on Satan. That are constantly paranoid about demonic activity. And the good news for those in that pit, nothing to fear any longer. Why? What did Jesus just demonstrate he had the authority to do? It says, with a word, he drove those spirits away. I love the, the hymn, the old hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther. It says, one little word shall fell him. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave us victory over sin and death. And he defanged, defeated Satan and his cronies forever. Yes, they exist. They have no more power anymore. Jesus is king. And in his name, we say go, and they have to go. One little word shall fell him. Now also in this story, we see Jesus calming the storm. We, we don't have time to get into that story, but it's in here in chapter 8. He's showing he's got, phys, uh, he's got authority over the spiritual world and the physical world. See, the, ex, the storm was external chaos. It, it, was, it was outward chaos, whereas demonic activity was inward chaos. And what Matthew wants to tell us here is that Jesus has authority over both. He has authority over it all. What's embedded in the word authority? It's the word author. And here Jesus, he is the one, the author of life. We sang it earlier, the author of salvation. He's the one that spoke the world into existence. He's the one that gave us our breath in the first place. He says, I'm the one that has authority over that which I have created, I've authored. And in the midst of our chaos, whether it's outward or inward, how sweet and necessary to know that he has got the whole world in his hands. That we need to know, some of us need to know today, that no matter what the chaos is in your life, whether it's sickness, whether it's some form of anxiety or depression, whether it is a form of mental illness, whether it's a relationship that's not going the way it should go, whether it's, whether it's some chaotic or crazy schedule, season that you're in right now in your life. Maybe it's for you, it's demonic forces. Maybe it's just getting through this long, hard, cold Alaskan winter, the, the Papa Bear storms. Jesus says, you're in the grip of my grace. I've got you. I authored your life, and I'm in control. We need to know that. We need to believe it and walk in it. Number five, Jesus healed to fulfill prophecy. Number one of Matthew's recurring themes is to show how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophets and their words. And this healing was part of that. Look at verse 17. After he has cast out demons and healed the sick, it says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So he's doing that here. The paralytic with the fevers. But he's quoting Isaiah 53, which if you read Isaiah 53, it is the most, like, Jesus-centered prophecy and chapter probably in all of the Old Testament. And we're going to see, as we'll see in the next story, that Isaiah, that God, through him, had something much larger than just physical healing in mind. So let's look at our last point. Jesus is willing and able to heal the spiritually sick. Spiritually sick. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. 
And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, remember the, in Mark 2, this is the story that they lowered him through the roof that they had torn open. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm the paralytic, let's, let's be honest here, I'm having someone else clean out my ear because I can't. I go, Jesus, did I hear you right? Because I, I don't think you, 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 you meant to say rise and walk, right? I, I'm paralyzed. Hello? We can deal with the sin stuff later. I'd like to get limber first. I, wouldn't, I mean, that, I would be a little bummed at what he said if, if we're being real. And, and then we see what happens. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, why would they say that? Well, in Mark 2, again, it explains. Because only God can forgive sins. They got it. Jesus is claiming to be God here when he claims that I'm forgiving your sins. And they forgot Jesus is God because it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? This is for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Now, let's be honest. If, if we were there, which one would we really say would be easier? Which one would we be more impressed with? We're going to have a baptism for three of our brothers and sisters after, right after the service. I invite you to come next door, Chad and Iris and Andrew Hammond. It'll be a sweet time. But if we're honest here, if, if we have that baptism later, and, and, but right now somebody came up, we wheelchaired someone up here who, who couldn't walk, and I, and, I, and I put a hand on them and said, be healed, and they got up and started flossing. Y'all would, I mean, and then we go next door, and in the baptismal, we hear the story, God raised me from the dead. God changed my heart. He forgave my sins. If we're honest, which one would be more impressive? From God's point of view, when a rebellious, self-centered, dead-in-their-sins sinner repents and believes in Jesus, he says, that is the bigger miracle. That's what's going to cause the angels to start dabbing in heaven, going nuts. See, we can ask for physical healing, and hear me on this, he wants us to ask that, and he wants to heal us physically. We've just seen many illustrations of that, but Jesus knows that if we're, we're more obsessed with the physical than we are the deeper issues, we, we've missed the point. I had a disease in my hips where if I didn't have the two replacements, I, w I wasn't going to be able to walk. Jesus cares about my hips. He cares about you and your loved ones and their illnesses and their injuries. But he cares deeper about the problem, the central problem in our hearts. Because you think about it, everyone who he physically healed still had to die, still had to face the judgment seat. Even Lazarus, who Lazarus is raised from the dead, he still has to die again. I don't think there's anyone currently who is in hell that is glad that he cured their cancer. And I don't think there's anybody in heaven complaining that he didn't. You see, one healing is temporary and the other one is eternal. It doesn't make the one irrelevant. It just shows us what's more important. Verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. Now what do we see in this? 
We hear resurrection language. He tells this man, rise. Three different times we hear the word rise or rose. Jesus has come to make all things new. He's reversing the curse, bringing the dead to life. Those who were disconnected from God to reconnect them. He's setting this in motion, light into the darkness wherever he goes. But there's something deeper going on here. Why did he say, rise and take up your mat? He cares about the paralytic, but he cares more deeply. He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to do what? To forgive sins. Because I want to show you the proof that I can do that. That's why I'm healing. Now, the reason this is, this is so dynamic at the time, this was not God's current route. This was not the current authority for saying who was forgiven and who wasn't. What would the Jews do at this time? They'd come to the temple. They would perform sacrifices. And the priest would decide if I had gone through the right steps to be forgiven. And here comes spiritual Oprah winging into town going, and you get forgiveness, and you get forgiveness, and you... And it's like, who do you think you are, Jesus, to be able to do something like this? Remember, he said, I am the new temple. and I am the new high priest. And I will become myself the sacrifice. He's showing us here the raising of the paralytic gives proof that he is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to raise the spiritually dead and to save us from the real enemy, the deeper enemy, which is not fevers and paralysis. It's not the storms. It is sin and the death that results from it. That's what our Savior came to save us from. So then we ask ourselves, how do we respond to this? Like, what do we do with this reality? Well, we, we see two responses from the people in this story. I think we have a lot to learn from there. Verse 8, after he's raised the, the, the paralytic, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So two responses here. The first one is we must fear the one who has authority to forgive sins. We must fear you saw a man walking down the street coming straight at you with a gun and he points that thing in your face, the normal, healthy, emotional response would be fear. Why? In this moment, this man has power over you. He has the authority, so to speak, of whether you live or whether you die. There's a healthy fear there. If you're standing before a judge and you know that, that what your life looking, looks like forward is, is in his hands, there's a, a healthy reverence and fear for the man standing on the other side of that desk. In Psalm 130, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? There's coming a judgment day when, when, when all mankind will stand before him. And he says, if you're counting our sins against us, there's no one who's hearing a positive verdict. He is the ultimate judge, the ultimate authority. He says, but with you there is forgiveness. That you, therefore, that you may be feared. That God is the one that holds the keys. That God is the one decides who's forgiven and who's not. And a proper response to that is a fear and a reverence and an awe of him. There's a lot of negative connotations with our concept of authority, and, and to some degree, rightly so. We all have seen instances where authority has been severely bruised, uh, misused and abused. But God gave Jesus authority to do what? He said, I came into this world not to condemn the world, but to save it. He gave him the authority to be our healer. And when Jesus showed his badge, 
when, when he showed his authority, he didn't show it by physical force. He didn't show it by violence, shooting the bad guys. How did he show his authority? He used the universe's strongest force that we've ever known. Love. He did not take lives. He gave up his own. And that's a different kind of authority than the world has ever known. He came to absorb our pain and our sin and our death. See, that puts a new spin on what Isaiah had said earlier. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That passage goes on to say it's by his wounds that were healed, that the Lord laid the sins of all mankind on the person of Jesus, and he took in himself the sins and condemnation and death that we deserved. That's the kind of authority figure that Jesus is. The policeman had used his authority to break up the party. Jesus has come so we got a louder party. You're going to say there's LaCroix for everyone. Secondly, we must glorify the one who has authority to forgive sins. Notice it says they were afraid and they glorified God. A right response when you see this man who has not even been able to, to move a pinky, get up dancing around, they're glorifying the great healer who has just performed this mighty act. It's a right response for us to praise him. And praising him, glorifying him, it involves faith. It involves entrusting our lives to him. And that involves trusting him with the results in our lives. Whether he heals us or not. I'd imagine we all have a loved one, a sick one, in our lives that God has not healed physically. I think of it in our own body. The long marathon we've had with Ricky. The more recent run we've had with Susie. We can think of times when God didn't or still hasn't physically healed. What do we do with that? We see in Hebrews 11, we see so clearly, there's this, this is called the hall of faith. It says, these people who believed, many of them did not receive what they were promised on this side of eternity. That doesn't mean that God is not being faithful. That means it's not all about the here and now. There's something better and sweeter coming. There's a day coming. Remember when Paul, the Apostle Paul, if there's anybody that's got faith, it's Paul, right? And three times he asked God to remove this thorn in his flesh. And to each time Jesus responds, I'm not going to do it. What does he say? My grace is sufficient for you. In fact, Paul, I want to show you that in the midst of your weakness, I am strong. We don't have the answers for why God heals when he heals and why he does it when he doesn't. But we have to trust that he's in control, that he knows what's best. And there is a day coming. There is a day coming. You read the second to last chapter in the Bible. There's a day coming when he will return bodily, bodily and physically to this earth. And it says he will wipe away every tear, that, that he will heal all disease. There will be no more leprosy. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. That day is not today. But the good news is, what Jesus is showing us here, as I read the Gospels, I don't see a single instance of someone who comes to Jesus for healing that he turns away. And even though there's, that's our reality today, there are, it, we're not learning from this, well, if you're sick, just pray, and Jesus will automatically heal you. But what we do see is, what verse did we read earlier? To all who received, everyone who repented, who said, I'm wrong, and I need you to be right for me, Jesus. It says, all who did that, who believed in his name, who said, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin on the cross, raised to a new life, and gave me your right standing before God. 
people who walk that road, who follow that Jesus, he says he gave the right to become children of God, to enter into the holy of holies, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how broken you are, no matter how sick you find yourself. He's a Jesus who wants to heal you. And our right response is to fear the one who is in authority but then to glorify him because he has brought us near. Father, we thank you that you've sent one to make things right, that there is a healer, that we have a hope for today. Lord, I know there's many of us in this room today that have loved ones or maybe even ourselves are sick, and and you tell us to come ask, and you do heal, and we all have examples of of ways that you've worked in mighty ways, but for many of those stories, we also have stories of of when that person passed away, when when that person was not healed. And we have, to, we have to just trust the one whose thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways in those, in those spaces. But to know that you care, that you know that you've got a plan, to know that you're going to be faithful, to know that, that you don't stiff arm us and aren't disgusted by our sin and, 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 and our weakness. But Lord, you stepped down into darkness to came to heal us, to make a way back to the Father, to enter into the Holy of Holies. That maybe there's someone here today or there are demonic forces whispering into their ear that they are too broken, they are too dirty, they've done too much, they've gone too far, that they need to hear that that is a lie from the pit of hell, that Jesus has forgiven, that no one deserves to stand, but in him there is full access to the throne, that those will admit that they're wrong and claim Jesus who was right for us. Father, we come to you today dirty and broken, but find in Jesus a cleansing, a healing, a full restoration of who we are as people. And therefore, we come only in the name, the beautiful, healing name of Jesus. And we pray. Amen.